The only thing that I am 100% certain of as we look ahead towards future growth is that things will change. And all change that leads to future growth, that leads to future transformation, it begins in the mind. That's why human transformation must proceed or at least coincide with any type of transformation at your financial brand, whether that be digital transformation, marketing transformation, sales transformation, brand transformation, or even cultural transformation. The same is true for your account holders when it comes to their financial transformation. So how can you inspire human transformation at your bank, at your credit, and at your fintech? Well, let's find out together on today's episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Greetings and hello, I'm James Robert Lay, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and joining me for today's conversation is David Dibble. David is the author of The New Agreements in the Workplace, Releasing the Human Spirit, and today we're going to dive into how you can unlock and release the human spirit to inspire human transformation that will guide you forward along your own journey of growth at your bank, at your credit union, or at your fintech. Welcome to the show, David. It is good to share time with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this as well. And this has actually been a couple of years in the making. And before we hit record, you and I and Audrey, we went back on all of these little connections of how this conversation came to be. And before we get into your book, The New Agreements in the Workplace, Releasing the Human Spirit, which I think is so important to consider right now, uh, particularly as we're entering into a new time period. What has been going well for you? What is positive in your life right now, personally or professionally? It is your pick to get started. I think it's um, the feeling uh, backed up with a, a little bit of action that um, my work uh, appears to be getting some traction. And that's really a good thing, you know, considering that uh, I've become an old dog, you know, with all these, uh, these years on the planet. But just uh, the idea that uh, we are starting to make some headway in bringing what I would call transformational work to the workplace. Well, which is, it's, it's so important because you wrote the book, The New Agreements in the Workplace, Releasing the Human Spirit, was, is 2002 right? If my memory serves correct? Yes. That was my first book in 2002. And um, I learned a lot. I actually went back and reread it about uh, six months or eight months ago. And I went, I thought I would hate it. But uh, I actually thought, well, actually, it's not terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually, it's really good. And that was one of the reasons that even before this conversation, Audrey, uh, our ops lead here, and I, we featured this book on our behind the cover series uh, because it is, I think, that important of a work for individuals and for teams to read together. So I I'm curious to get started. Why going all the way back to 2002? Because it's interesting. It's 21 years, which which it, another point of time, February 11th, 2002 was the year that I started what would become the Digital Growth Institute. So a little bit of a of a connection of of first, if you will, but why write the new agreements in the workplace going all the way back to two thousand two? Where were you? Well, I'll back up just a little further. Um, I had uh, been a student 
of Don Miguel Ruiz, who had written uh, The Four Agreements. I think that book came out in uh, 1998. And uh, he sort of threw me out in 19, uh, 1998, uh, roughly said it was quite time to teach. And so um, I had been thinking, well, I knew my work was supposed to be in the workplace. I just feel like that's why I'm here, you know, in this particular lifetime. Um, but I wasn't sure what that meant. And uh, it was, I think, about 2001 when I finally saw it. I said, okay, um, the Four Agreements had become uh, an international uh, bestseller. And I thought what I can really look at is bringing the Four Agreements and also some new agreements to the workplace as a model for transformation. Going back you mentioned that you were a student of Don Miguel Ruiz. What was that experience like? Because you were with him for, like you said, a period of time as a student. And then he said, no, now it's your time to become the teacher. Go back in your mind. What, what did you take from that experience going forward to write this book to even where you're at now? Well, I feel like um, my time with uh, Don Miguel was, uh, a gift, maybe the greatest gift I've ever been given. Mm. Uh, he is a true teacher, and there are not many of those types of people uh, wandering around the planet these days. And so, um, and I also had the opportunity, you know, to start to work with him from the very beginning. Uh, he had just come uh, to the U.S. from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And there was no one around him. I mean, in the beginning, we were just this little group, you know, of people. And we would end up, you know, there'd be four or five, eight of us, that sort of thing. Had an opportunity to travel the world with him uh, in small groups. And, of course, uh, out of that became not only a student, but, you know, really best friends. Yeah. And um, I think just having... Uh, that experience where, you know, it was more than just being a student. It was, um, it was like uh, being around with uh, the world's greatest mentor. Mm. And so you flash forward, you write the book, and I know that your expertise, and like you said, your, your, your calling was the workplace. And your expertise is, is in the area of systems-based transformation within the workplace. And and, and that of the world, uh, which is in line with my thinking, where I say human transformation must proceed or coincide with digital transformation, brand transformation, cultural trend, any type of transformation, even financial transformation. It all it, it comes back to human transformation. And I, I want to get your take on this because I know your area of work is within the world of, of healthcare. What, what type of transformational work are you doing with healthcare? Because there is such a strong relationship between a person's financial well-being and their physical well-being and their financial well-being and their mental well-being. It's all interconnected. But the, what's the transformational work that you're doing right now within the world of, of healthcare? I would call it um, systems-based uh, transformation. Um, if we, if we go back, uh, to 1977, um, a really brilliant man, Ilya Brigogine won a Nobel prize for his law of dissipative structures and the law of dissipative structures describes 
how all systems and subsystems in the physical universe, from the macro, which could be a, a galaxy far, far away, or even our own Milky Way, um, all the way down to the quantum level, how they grow, evolve, and transform. And the physical universe, of course, is made up of systems and subsystems. Healthcare is made up of systems and subsystems. Uh, pretty much all of it invisible to everybody who uh, works um, in those systems or delivers care in those systems. However, 94% of all the outcomes we get, good and bad, are a function of those systems and not the efforts of the people working in the systems. So if we want to create change in the workplace, we've got to do the systems work. And healthcare for the last 30 plus years has been trying very, very hard to change one program after another, but <clears throat> never taken a system-based approach uh, to that change. It's interesting when you're talking about the work going back to 1977 and you're starting at the macro level all the way to the universe, going down to the true micro with quantum, and you look at systems and subsystems, and then you run that through the lens of healthcare, the same is true within financial services as well. And you think about some of the changes that have been attempted within financial services as that world has evolved. Looking into your worldview within healthcare, why why is change hard? What you know, when we're dealing with people, what where's the the challenge there? What is that challenge of change rooted in? I think there's two halves um, of an integrated whole uh, when we look at uh, change, sustainable change. Mm. <laughs> so, for instance, um, one half is systems change. So if you don't change the systems, you can't change outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. And, of course, in the vast majority of cases in any workplace, whether we're talking about financial services or healthcare or, you know, somebody, you know, that works in a in a shop somewhere on cars. Um, if you want to create change, you're going to have to do the systems work to change the systems. <clears throat> but equally important is change in people. I think it was Einstein that said you cannot uh, solve problems with the same thinking used to create them. Yeah. So that means that the people have to grow beyond their existing mindsets. And that, of course, is a huge challenge because the mind uh, does not want to grow. As a matter of fact, it would like to filter out anything unlike itself. And so we have to deal with those two things at the same time to create uh, sustainable change, whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in financial services. And that means that we have to be working both with the systems and with the people in order to create an environment where they can actually grow and transform at the level of the mind. That brings up such an important point, because when you talk about this idea of the mind and mindset, I think about some of the recent keynotes that I've been doing, and I've asking these financial brand leaders, what's the most important technology that, that you need to think about um, mastering, if you will, in this quote unquote, this age of AI? And they look at me a bit funny. They think, well, is, is, is it AI? Is it data? Is it, is it automation? I go, well, what if you looked within? What if it's your mind and your mindset, which is the third agreement in your book and knowing the power of the mind uh, as a creative faculty, 
to not just create the future, but when working alongside other human beings to co-create the future uh, together. What? That's, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that was really a bit of a breakthrough for me and my work was the fact that uh, I had been uh, studying a man named Buckminster Fuller. And um, Bucky's a great genius and uh, also a great humanitarian. <laughs> but he said one thing that really changed a lot of things for me. He said, every thought is a system. So that meant that the mind is systematic. Mm -hmm. And if the mind is systematic, that meant that it too would be at the effect of the law of dissipated structures. And so now, basically, we could apply many of these principles that we were using to create systems change to creating change at the level of the mind, and we could do them simultaneously. Yes. So this is where, you know, our change model, we call it 3D change management or 3D healthcare. That's where this all came from is sort of this uh, mashup of these uh, various technologies from, you know, diverse sources uh, out in the universe. Well, then you look at this idea, even the, the subtitle of the new agreements in the workplace, it's releasing the human spirit. I want to pause on this point here because if we're talking about the mind, let's go deeper. Why, why might it be important now more than even perhaps ever before, whether it be healthcare or, or financial services, financial brands, to think about the growth potential they can create or capture when releasing the human spirit from within their organization? What are the opportunities here? Well, they're huge. Um, there is a part of us uh, that um, becomes constrained um, by the domestication of the mind. And if we look at how the mind is actually created, uh, we start to create the mind generally when we can make a connection as an infant to the outside world. And it's normally our parents, they start off by telling us, you know, this is good, this isn't good, do this, don't do that. And um, over time, what happens is, whatever the mindsets of the parents are, they start to kind of, uh, they start to recreate themselves um, in, uh, in the kids. Mm. And then, of course, we go to school, and we get more of the same, and then we go to work, and we get more of the same. But basically, that domestication process um, ends up uh, creating um, filters which suppress the creative human spirit that lives in each of us. That's a great point, because one of the things that I've been really encouraging financial brand leaders consider is taking on the mind of a five-year-old, becoming the, cre the, the curious kindergartner once again to... Get back to learning. It's There's the Socratic definition of wisdom is I know I know nothing. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of humility. And I would say that I, that's my MO um, now more than ever. And I'm, and I'm exponentially more curious. And I'm, even in this conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm, I'm like a sponge. And what is it, though, that holds a leader back? with 30 years of experience from being willing and, and just maybe even open 
to accepting that there could be another way, that there might be another perspective that could create even more value for them when they create even more value for another human being, whether that be their internal team member or externally an account holder, what holds us back? What, what creates the resistance to that awareness? Well, there's an old saying that our success becomes the barrier to our future success. Mm. And so if you look at how did I'll make it up, but let's say we're talking to uh, uh, the CEO of a fortune 500 company. So most likely uh, this is a person who has been very, very successful pretty much all the way along and finally finds themselves at the pinnacle of success. And so what the mind does is it repeats whatever made it made it successful in the first place, no matter how poor the outcomes. Mm. Matter of fact, in my book, I call it more, better, different. The mind defaults to doing more of what's no longer working, doing what isn't working um, better or doing what's not working differently. And this gets uh, people who are at the top, particularly, um, into trouble because they can't get outside of their own mindsets uh, to basically create new realities. That's a great point, which brings you to, in your book, it's the, I think it's the fourth agreement, shift your systems. Since we're talking systems thinking, getting outside of your perspective, which I look at the sum of context and framing. And if we can't do that, we can't go and create new realities. So therefore the future becomes a predictable past based upon the decisions that we're making right now in the present moment. How do we practically do that? How do we shift our systems to transform our mindsets to then be able to have the opportunity to go and create a whole new perspective and, and way of doing going forward in the future? What's, what's a practical step someone could take here? Well, when we were working um, with Miguel over those uh, eight years, um, we never worked on the four agreements, even though that's what sort of made uh, Don Miguel famous. We worked on three masteries. And the first mastery is the mastery of awareness. And without awareness, nothing happens, at either at the level of the mind or at the level of systems. So for instance, if we're looking at making change uh, in the systems, the first thing we have to do is make them visible mm. and make people aware of what they look like, particularly as a collective. So the collective can now see the systems. And then the second thing is called the mastery of transformation. And at the level of systems, we basically identify root causes of problems and we remove them. At the level of the mind, we proactively change those thoughts, beliefs, and memories uh, that are not no longer serving us. So, And that basically is, that's the fast track to create transformation at the level of the mind is the practice of the master of awareness then the mastery of transformation. And if you are really good at those two masteries, you can move on to the third mastery, which is called the mastery of intent, which is the mastery of energy. I want to talk on the mastery of intent because, and it's interesting, you're talking awareness and transformation. So as I'm wrapping up my second book titled Banking on Change with the working subtitle of a 
The Leader's Guide to Exponential Growth in the Age of AI. I use a formulaic approach to exponential growth. And exponential growth I define as when an individual has the perception that they are growing professionally and personally at the same time because a person's professional growth will fuel their uh, or person's personal growth will fuel, the, fuel their professional growth and their professional growth will fuel their personal growth. And whenever one is struggling with one or the other, it's going to also be an impediment to said growth. And the formula is awareness plus commitment is the path that leads to transformation. And it's easy to gain the awareness. That's the learning. That's the, the, the thinking, the knowing, like you said, you can surface some of this that leads to the transformation, but it's the commitment in the middle that we have to commit to do, to take the next steps, which now it's the intent, I guess, that requires energy to move forward. Um, and so when you take awareness, commitment, transformation, you add it all together, it's the need to act to growth, uh, act for growth. So let's talk energy here. And for the bankers who are watching or listening, stay with, stay with me on this, stay, stay with David on this. I don't want to lose you, um, but this is so important because emotion is energy in motion. And I think the emotional energetic state that we have can directly influence how we move forward. So can you, can you continue forward with this thought to dive deeper into energy and your perspective here? Uh, sure. Um, for we humans, um, really, for the most part, uh, looking at quality of life, uh, emotional energy is all that counts. If you look at uh, how do we define whether we're having a good or bad day, it will be from emotional energy, either the emotions that come from love or the emotions that come from fear. Mm. When you have a lot of emotions that come from fear, you're going to be having a bad day. If you have a lot of emotions that are coming from love and acceptance and compassion, those sorts of things, you're going to be having a really good day. So emotional energy defines the quality of our lives. And emotional energy uh, defines uh, or is proportional to the amount of change that takes place at the level of the mind. You will see, um, just we can even look in our own lives, that all of the great changes that have taken place in our lives have been circumscribed by large amounts of emotional energy, probably that the mind defined as crisis. So uh, emotion should always be the trigger that says, oh, I better pay attention. There's something going on that needs my attention. And this could be positive emotions or it could be negative emotions. But the idea that that should snap us into a state of awareness and then we can look at, okay, do we, if we want to stay in that state, that's fine. That's a, actually a step in the right direction because we're choosing it. Or we could make a decision to move to the mastery of transformation and proactively change those thoughts to thoughts that uh, have different emotional energy, positive emotional energy. And in doing that, we literally change the physical reality. Yeah. So I will be the first one to admit if we were having this conversation a decade ago, I would not have a clue as to what was being discussed and would probably tune out. I will tell you from personal experience and to use your 
point, mastery of transformation, I understand the role of energy when it comes to positive and negative, even to the point to where now in banking on change, one of the methodologies that I'm writing to is starting every conversation as you and I have did today, what's been going well, tell me something positive. Um, and I have implored the leaders that I've been working with to consider doing the exact same because they can directly influence the energetic state of a conversation, their team, their organization, by asking the one simple question of what's been going well and well is an acronym of where have you been winning the past? What are you excited and energized about right now in the present moment? So the present, what have you learned? And looking at, at any type of experience as a learning experience. And then also importantly, what are you looking forward to going forward into the future to ensure that the future has the ability to be bigger and better going forward for those who might, and I, and I, and I, tread with all respect here for those watching and listening. And they're like, okay, I, I think you're losing me a little bit, but I'm still here listening. So thank you for that. Number one, number two, if I think about the banker's brain, I wrote about this in banking on digital growth. My first book, the banker's brain is very smart. It's very analytical. It's very logical. But what we're talking here is a completely different way of perhaps thinking operations systems, how do we help navigate that transformation in the mind? Because it could feel a little bit scary for some to even take that step and, and do so with just with love and compassion, basically. Well, yeah. Um, what happens is um, we identify with our minds. In other words, um, when I say I, and I'm speaking to you about something that's over here, uh, basically it's my mind that is speaking to you. And the like for, let's talk about the banker, uh, for instance, and the, you know, you look at like what's important to the banker. And of course you're gonna see logic, uh, you're going to see numbers, uh, you're going to see things that are um, black and white. And all those things live in a part of the mind we call the masculine mind. And that's fine. We need the masculine mind. Uh, otherwise, we'd have a, uh, a complete imbalance, you know, in the mm -hmm. way we're trying to, to work in the world. But the problem is that we are really designed to be balanced for parts of the mind. The masculine mind, the feminine mind, which is basically emotions and memory, the mm -hmm. uh, authoritarian mind, which is rules, regulations, and boundaries that we've created for ourselves. And then finally, the spiritual mind, which is connection to nature and the body clock and light. Now, in a perfect world, all of those would be balanced. However, you take a look at the problems, and I'll just make this up, but the problems faced by people who are imbalanced toward the masculine mind and authoritarian mind, which is basically most of the workplace, and you will see it's because they are suppressing the other parts of themselves, the feminine mind and the spiritual mind. And so what that says is, look, yeah, we need the numbers and we need the logic. And of course, we need the rules, regulations and boundaries. You can't do banking without that. Yeah. And at the same time, we've got to start um, bringing you know, our emotional energy into it. 
and allowing, you know, people, uh, including ourselves, you know, to emote and to uh, and to be more authentic about how we're feeling about things. And then finally, uh, moving into the spiritual mind and looking, is there a higher purpose for what we're doing? Because there is always going to be or there should be, I mean, a higher purpose for what we're doing if we want to get the absolute most out of life, including our work life. And so this idea that, um, yes, it's uncomfortable to balance. It's uncomfortable to, to look at things that we don't understand. But look, that's the way the mind works. It naturally resists anything outside its comfort zone. And so you'll see the closer you get to the edge of the comfort zone, the more uncomfortable it is. And the more likely it is somebody's going to race back into the middle of the comfort zone, Mm -hmm. doing the same things they've always done, thinking the same stuff they've always thought, feeling the same stuff they've always felt. So So your idea, I'll just say this, your idea of commitment is so critical because it takes commitment and practice to be good at transformation and growth. How how do, and maybe if you don't mind, maybe just ask a personal question. How have you continuously worked to transform yourself? Cause you talk about the comfort zone. I'm writing about the cave of complacency. Um, it's easy to get trapped in that because the cave of complacency, it, it feels good. It feels safe, but it's a pseudo safety, I think to a point. Um, because if we're looking for continuous growth and expansion back to the four parts of, of your mind model, which I really appreciate, how have you looked to maintain or at least try to gain balance, um, so that you're not over indexing in one, um, and also not getting trapped in the comfort zone, but you're continuously expanding externally. What have you done over the, over just the course of your journey of growth to to be mindful and aware of of that perspective yourself? Practice, 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 practice. Um, when I first got on what we might call uh, this this seeker's journey, wanting to know those big questions: Who am I? Uh, you know, what am I here to do in this lifetime? What's my purpose? How does the universe work? Um, I was as stuck as anybody that I've ever known. And when I first started doing this work where, you know, we're starting to, you know, try and quiet the mind a little bit, uh, starting to look at it a little bit, starting to, you know, look in the mirror a little bit. um, It was so hard. I uh, really, it was awful. Hmm. But I also knew that um, if I was ever going to, if I was ever going to achieve what I thought I might be able to achieve in this lifetime, I was going to have to do this work. And so I I have been really committed to it for the last, you know, roughly 40 years. And um, it's gotten easier and easier. And what happens is we become what we practice. So I practiced awareness, you know, I've been practicing it for 40 years, and I'm actually somewhat aware now. I've been practicing transformation for 40 years, you know, I'm actually somewhat good at it. (laughs) (laughs) And, and if you think about that, it, it's, it's the commitment. Once again, it's a conscious choice. It's a, and I think, you know, and I've talked about this publicly, you know, kind of my 
dark night of the soul moment and crisis back in 2012 when my wife said hey yeah the business is successful but you're a horrible husband and you're a failing father you need to go go figure your life out kind of a thing and it was robert frost who really inspired me with his uh two roads to virgin yellow wood and i took the one less traveled and that has made all the difference something i saw in my freshman english class who actually that's where i met my wife first day of high school in that same exact class with that same exact poster I always looked at that poster though and said, yeah, two roads of virgin yellow wood, but what's up the middle? What's the third path, the path that's not taken the what's in the brush. Let me go there. It might be a little bit painful, but it's, it's, let me just explore that. And when she told me that, that then sent me down this, we'll call it just a transformational journey. And I think about just the last decade of my life. And I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I'm really excited. I'm really energized about, where I've been and be able to just transform perspectives of failure into learning, help do some of this now for my kids to, to hopefully give them help, elevate them to a higher plane, a higher state of, of opportunity. Um, and then also the work that we've been doing with financial brands um, and how that has truly transformed over time. We are entering into a new period and I, I'm curious to get your take on this. Um, I'm still learning and, you know, forming opinions and perspectives, but AI, artificial intelligence. Um, what do we need to be mindful of from a point of human transformation as we're entering into this new time period where human connection, I think, is going to grow in importance to navigate some of this complexity going forward? Um, AI, I, um, I have not seen in my time, um, on the planet, uh, anything that is going to disrupt systems faster than AI. Um, where, I mean, when we think about something happening rapidly, you know, we talk about, you know, a generation or two generally. Yeah. Um, but remember that whatever we're experiencing as human beings on the planet is going to be dictated by the systems in which we live and work, even though we might not even be aware of them. That's just the way, you know, it's the way everything works. And so um, as societies, um, things move relatively slowly um, you know, it takes 50 years to change anything in education, you know, 40, 45 years to change anything in healthcare. So that's, you know, relatively slowly. We are looking at AI uh, basically um, changing and in many ways uh, destroying legacy systems um, in in ways that we can't even fathom yet. I mean, think about Think about this. Um, in two to three years, uh, we are going to have mass job loss around the world. Mass job loss. Why? Because AI is going to be doing those jobs. Now, will any of those benefits be flowing to the people who lose those jobs? Not right now, they won't. All those benefits are going to flow to the big companies or the companies that are using that AI to reduce their costs. 
So uh, how's society going to be with, you know, millions and millions of unemployed people with basically jobs that are never coming back? How's society going to react to that? I think that's the first thing yeah. that I, I worry about that because that's two to three years away. Yeah. Well, and, and I, um, yeah, so that would be my first, my first thought. There's others. I mean, I can see AI getting smarter than, than we are and, uh, whew, and what, you know, it's interesting to gain your perspective, which I value and I appreciate um, because once again, I'm, I'm looking to continuously learn. I think back to 1994 was the year the internet reached the mass consciousness of humanity. 30 years now, and you look at really all of the exponential transformations that have happened at a macro level. Um, and some are great and amazing. The fact that you and I are having this conversation and we're seeing each other and it's a shared experience. I mean, that wasn't even possible to fathom. I remember being a kid growing up in the eighties and looking in the Sears Christmas catalog. And there was a telephone with a little video LCD screen. It was like eighties, late eighties, early nineties. And I was like, I want one of those so that I could call my grandmother and see her face to face. And then here we are and we have this capability, but then there's also the kind of the down and the dark side of things too, that, you know, people don't want to talk about, but, and, and that's why I'm asking very just openly, what are people's different perspectives? And so now when you think about November 30th, 2022, that was the year that chat GPT AI, if you will, reached the mass consciousness of humanity, just like the internet, the internet was around before 94, but it was academia, it was military, it was government, same thing. AI has been around, but now it's mass consciousness. Chat GPT went from zero to hundred million users in two months, exponential. It's the exponential curve that of technology. Now, now you add AI to that that fuels it further, farther, faster. And, 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 and human thinking is, is traditionally more linear. And so it's creating this gap. Um, and that gap is where some of maybe the confusion, the complexity, the chaos comes in. But to your point, transformational at the macro level, job, job loss, job displacement, new jobs, of course, but, but what do you do? How, how do you, how do people navigate? Like hypothetically, it's, it's a, it's a great, mental thinking exercise you're a bank or credit union community bank credit union ceo because that's typically our primary market of focus is is the community and in the next two to three years there's massive job displacement job loss well how is that going to impact your community institution your community organization it's a mental exercise what are you going to do to give people help what are you going to do to give people hope during that period of time. And I don't have the answers per se. I'm just as much asking the questions just to ask the questions so that I maybe perhaps think about them. I think to the point of the mind here, you can have a statement or you can ask a question. I tend to think in more questions than statements because I'm trying to open my mind to new possibilities, but it's a, it's a fair point that you're making, David. As, as we start to wrap up here, I wanna end on a positive note though. Looking out towards the future when it comes to human transformation. What are you hopeful about? What what what's giving you the greatest feeling of, you know what? We as human beings, we still have a vast amount of potential to co-create, to collaborate, to create value for one another. What's giving you the greatest hope for the future? 
Uh, I would say um, the fact that um, the law of dissipated structures uh, is now on steroids. And um, I mention this because the law of dissipated structures is working at the level of human consciousness too, or of the mind. And we are not, uh, I do not believe that we're going to make it in the current form as a humanity um, with the same consciousness that we have right now. I think the biggest issue that we face uh, on the planet right now is moving beyond um, the existing consciousness that we've had for actually a very long time um, to something that is inclusive. Now, the universe, in the universe, all systems are connected from the macro to the micro. You know, we can't find a place where one system ends and another one begins. You and I are connected. You know, I can't do something to you without doing something to myself. Yes. And the problem that we have is that we have been fed, I think, two huge myths. One of them is that we are separate. We're separate from each other. We're separate from nature. We're separate from life. We're separate from the stars. None of that is true. And the second one is scarcity, Mm. that there's not enough. Better get enough for ourselves. And don't worry about it because we're separate. If something happens over there, it's not going to make any difference over here. That's also a myth. Bucky Fuller proved that it was a myth. He said, if we just shared, there was enough to go around where every single human being could live a higher standard of living than even some of the top people were living at the time. He estimated the carrying capacity if we shared on the planet for humanity was 13 million people. We pass the carrying capacity <laughs> of the planet with our with our scarcity myth in 1971. Yeah. So we're living on borrowed time right now. Somehow we've got to we've got to raise human consciousness to a level where you know we can support each other and all life on the planet, uh, as opposed to uh, you know what's in it for me. And that right there is such a great way to wrap up today's conversation. What can we do? What can you do who are watching and listening to help guide others, to help others grow in a period of complexity, to provide them with help, to provide them with hope? But I, I want to I get your thought on this, David. I always like to wrap up with a very practical perspective, something that someone can do right now to apply what we've been discussing here. And how can someone do that? How can they begin to either raise their level of consciousness, awareness, or those that they're working with to impact positive change and transformation to go beyond where they're at now to an even bigger, better, brighter future full of hope and opportunity? What would be the one thing that they could commit to do right now in the present moment that leads to that future creation? I would, um, I would, I actually have two, uh, two things that I would share um, with anyone who's listening. Uh, Number one, um, whatever you can do uh, to quiet your mind, start there. It doesn't matter what it is. 
could be meditation, it could be yoga, it could be spending time in nature, just anything that you can do to quiet your mind. Whatever it is, it's going to be tied to the breath in some way. But just uh, that's one. And then I have no idea whether this is going to work or not. But I'm starting a thing called the 100 Million Dreamers Project. And the purpose will be to get uh, 100 million uh, people around the world um, setting their intent uh, to dream a new dream uh, for the planet, um, which I, I believe will work just like large group meditation in changing the physical reality. So uh, I'll have scripts and so forth that'll probably be available on our new website in a couple of weeks, but very, very simple. You set your intent at night for whatever it is you would most like to see uh, on the planet. Uh, it can be anything. And then uh, just, you know, that's all you do. And just go ahead and you'll dream and you'll, you'll dream with other people that will be setting a similar intent. And I think we can change the consciousness of the world uh, doing this if we get lucky. Well, I think about a conversation that I had with Keith Costello who is the founder, one of the founders and CEO of Locality Bank uh, out of the South Florida market. And I know Keith is a big meditator. It is part of his daily activity um, that he does. And he's spoken publicly about the benefits that has had for him, but also for those around him as well. So very practical takeaway right there, David. Thank you so much. And thanks for today's conversation. I am grateful for the time that we have shared together for the perspective that you have brought. If someone wants to continue the conversation that we have started, you've got a great new uh, project that you're uh, beginning as well, but also grab a copy of of your book that, you, that you've written, even though it was in 2002. It's still very practical, if not even more practical now, um, as we look ahead towards the future, how can they, A, connect with you, B, where can they get a copy of your book? Uh, best best thing to do would probably just go, I have two websites, actually new ones. One of them is thenewagreements.com, and the other one is daviddibble.com. And uh, those books are available on the website. And uh, if you're interested in dreaming and that sort of uh, that work, you can go to the David Dibble site. If you're interested in transformation in the workplace, particularly in healthcare, you can go to thenewagreements.com. Connect with David, learn with David, grow with David. David, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. This has been a good one for sure. Thank you so much. I love you guys. I mean, you're incredible. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We love you too. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, be the light.